It was a tumultuous time for our nation. The clear beverage craze gave us all a reason to live. The information superhighway showed the average person what some nerd thinks about Star Trek. And the domestication of the dog continued unabated. Welcome to The Sunday Presents with me, Kira Maloney. And me, Dean Buckley. The Sunday is a blog we started blah, 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 years ago to write about film and TV and music, mainly pop punk. And, and sometimes book-length essays about Eminem. Yes, exactly. And this is a podcast where we make each other watch favorite films of ours we've never seen. Uh, in this case, specifically, a film I love so much I would... Describe it as my third favorite Star Trek film. <laughs> and that film is... Star Trek, the motion picture. A.K.A. Star Trek, the slow motion picture. A.K.A. Star Trek, the motionless picture. Etc. Etc. Ah, can people who hate Star Trek leave? Good question. No, you, you have, have to, to stay, stay even longer. No. Of the two of us, I am certainly not the the Trek guy. <laughs> I've seen a, a few episodes of the original series, and I had a roommate who wasn't Kira who watched <laughs> Star Trek in the house sometimes while I was there, and I saw some. I think the very first episode of Star Trek I ever watched was the Voyager episode, Tuvalix, where the two people get mashed together, and then it's. <laughs> It's an abortion metaphor. I think that was the first episode of Star Trek I ever watched. I'm pretty sure I watched that before I watched the Kelvin films even. So I think that might have been my <laughs> intro to Star Trek. But uh, I, so, I've absorbed so a lot from seen, you. You've seen Wrath of Khan, right? I've seen Wrath of Khan, the Kelvin films. The sequel films, to and, the and, film and, we're going to talk about today, allegedly. Sequel is a strong word. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's called I'm Star Trek sure 2, that... Wrath of Khan. Are you sure the Wrath of Khan is a sequel to like the Bad Seed or whatever? The, that, the first Space episode, Space Seed. Okay. In which Khan appears, but we're not talking about Wrath of Khan. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're talking about the motion picture. I've seen all the Star Trek movies. I've seen Next Generation, the TV show, and I've seen most of the original series. And I also watched the first season of Star Trek Discovery and hated it, <laughs> just because just because it was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> For the uninitiated, and, and I mean even less initiated than Dean, which is not very initiated, since the film makes no effort whatsoever to initiate you. <laughs> Star Trek was a TV show created by Gene Roddenberry that aired for three seasons from 1966 to 1969. And conceptually, Star Trek is a dream of a utopian future. The original series takes place in the 23rd century in a world where there's no more hunger and no more hate, no more racism, no more poverty, no more war. Earth and a bunch of other planets with intelligent life, most notably Vulcan, are part of the United Federation of Planets, which is exactly what it sounds like. Vulcans, for the record, are devoted to a philosophy based on logic. We'll uh, end up talking about that a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Starfleet, the Federation's space force, does a mixture of exploration, research, peacekeeping, and diplomacy, 
and the original series is set aboard a Starfleet ship, the USS Enterprise, which is on a five-year mission in deep space to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. The crew of where the no man has gone before. Sorry. <laughs> Gene Romney must have absolutely been kicking himself when he realized because then no one has gone before mm-hmm. and then he was like that's number one thing about next generation i gotta change it to no one the crew of the enterprise reflects roddenberry's utopian vision to the extent possible on very conservative 1960s tv in that <laughs> on the bridge we have sulu an asian man Chekhov, a russian when the show aired at the height of the cold war and lieutenant uhura a black woman Famously, when Whoopi Goldberg was a child, she saw Star Trek and she ran around the house shouting, come quick, come quick. There's a black woman on TV and she ain't no maid. There's also a Scottish guy as chief engineer, but I don't think there's diversity points for that. (laughs) (laughs) But the main characters are Captain James P. Kirk, his first officer, Mr. Spock, and the chief medical officer, Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy. Kirk is, I believe, the youngest captain in Starfleet. His reputation, like, in the general, like, I don't mean the general public in the universe, but, like, in the world that we live Mm. in, his reputation is very much as, like, an almost James Bond-esque hothead Lothario, but he's actually a very soft, sweet, bisexual nerd boy, although they don't say that he's bisexual, obviously. Spock? Kirk Kirk constantly says he's bisexual in his actions, um, words and attitudes, but not explicitly. (laughs) Exactly. Spock is Vulcan, technically half human, half Vulcan, uh, which is part of why he has this internal division about whether he's Vulcan enough. And McCoy is a grumpy country doctor. Yeah. Uh, the show got cancelled because it was really expensive and had really bad ratings. Tales of time. Classic. Classic. And I'm pretty sure it only survived as long as it did because a small group of people who did watch it were like, you know, the kind of weirdos who do letter writing campaigns <laughs> asking for the their kind of weirdos who, inv- who essentially invented that whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would seem like the story would end there, right? Unpopular show gets cancelled, disappointing dozens. <laughs> but then it becomes a bona fide hit in syndication, shockingly. So in the 70s, it was popular in a way it never was when it was on. And it became a cult show with a genuine cult. Not like when these days people say cult show about shows that just like some people like it. Star Trek was a cult show. Hmm. So Paramount, who obviously owned the rights, were like, man, maybe we should do something with this. And they, (laughs) they start development on a movie. Roddenberry, in a classic Roddenberry move, wants it to be about the Enterprise crew meeting a godlike entity, blah, blah, blah just like every episode of the original series. Um, (laughs) And they're working on that for a while, but then they switch tack to the idea of making a new Star Trek TV show called Phase 2. But then a little film called Star Wars comes out, Mm. and it made so much money. And Paramount were like, scrap it, never mind, we're making a fucking movie, and we're going to get Star Wars rich out of it. They hired Robert Wise of West Side Story and Sound of Music fame to direct it. They held their largest press conference since Cecil B. DeMille announced he was making the Ten Commandments to announce it. (laughs) 
And let's just say they didn't make Star Wars money out of it. Yeah, I didn't actually look at the box office, but that that I guessed that. All right. <laughs> it made it made I I believe it did make a profit, but like just about, the, you know. They weren't looking for a profit. <laughs> they were looking for the profit. Yeah, and they were like, next time you gotta make this for like very cheap. And, and also, it has to have action scenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> and a <yeah>. bad guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, considering those things are not in Star Trek the Motion Picture, what is in Star Trek the Motion Picture, Jane? Okay, so I want to just flag at the start, as I as I already did to Kira before the episode started, that while the plot of this film is extremely simple and very little actually happens in it, nothing happens for like half an hour at a time which is composed of lots of micro nothing <laughs> and so the exact sequencing of events may be a little off but this is what happens in in star trek the motion picture so as kira said directed by robert wise who in all fairness as well as west side story and the sound of music did also direct the day the earth stood still yeah i was only so, so. i was only teasing <laughs> No, he's a genius, obviously. Yeah. Um, Written by Harold Livingston from a story by Alan Dean Foster. I have a feeling it's a bit more complicated than that. But I did not look into any information about this film because I was afraid of accidentally stumbling across information Kira didn't want me to know. (laughs) Let's just say that Roddenberry had a lot of impact. Yeah. So, Star Trek The Motion Picture begins with a two and a half minute long orchestral overture set to an infinite screensaver of stars in rear view of a body moving at speed, giving you an early taste of what you're in for. After the credits, we see a Federation space station observing a trio of Klingon ships engage with a mysterious space cloud that is very clearly a giant spaceship and not a cloud. But anyway, they get vaporized immediately, and it's on its way to Earth. First it's going to hit the space station, then it's going to get to Earth. Mm. On Vulcan, Spock is about to undergo the Vulcan Rite of Colonar, which mm. will purge him at last of all emotion, allowing him to live a life of pure logic. But just before, he is psychically contacted by the space cloud, for some reason, and told to go sort himself out by the Vulcan elders because he's only been contacted because his human half, his weak, emotional <laughs> human half, uh, reached out to the cloud for some reason. There's a lot of for some reason in Star Trek in general. It's not criticism, just an observation. I also just want to note at this point for people who aren't familiar that that I, I really love Vulcans because much like the ancient Greeks, they are constantly uh, wanking off about being a culture based on reason and logic while doing spooky rituals in front of <laughs> giant statues of their fearsome and warlike gods. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that is true. <laughs> Back on Earth, Admiral James T. Kirk uh, uses his authority to put himself in the captain's chair on the newly refitted Enterprise, his old ship. For a mission to intercept the cloud. Uh, he goes up to the, the Enterprise with his old head of engineering, Scotty. While they're flying up, they're in this like pod. And the pod makes it look like they're on a TV screen. And as they're passing over the Enterprise, just for no reason, there's this giant panel of really bright lights that looks like a cinema marquee. And it all feels very meta for like... It's not like the main thing, but there's like a real meta thing to like... Kirk and Scotty fly up on a TV, pass by these big movie lights, get on the Enterprise, and then Kirk is immediately reintroduced to the entire supporting cast of Star Trek, (laughs) who, 
strangely enough, are all aware that he's resuming the captaincy. Someone who's not aware of this, however, is the new captain of the Enterprise, Willard Decker. Kirk goes to see Decker, lets him know about the situation, and uh, Decker is understandably very insulted and gives Kirk shit about it. (laughs) Then, for some reason, (laughs) something immediately explodes, killing the Vulcan science officer, uh, who is not Spock, to be clear, because Spock's, you know, he's been doing ritual shit. And Kirk's like, damn, I wish I had another Vulcan to be my science officer. But since I don't have one on hand, I guess you'll do Decker. So Decker's both his first officer and his science officer. Before the Enterprise leaves, Dr. Leonard McCoy arrives on ship to serve as medical officer. He looks like he came to fuck. He's got a big beard and like he's dressed in disco. He's got medallions. And a jumpsuit. It's like, and he, he shaves this all off and just appears as regular McCoy in the next scene. So I have to assume that was DeForest Kelly's first day on set. (laughs) Like, to give a sense of the slowness of this movie, it is uh, two hours and 16 minutes long, and it is 36 minutes before the Enterprise begins to move. (laughs) As they they depart, uh, Kirk orders the Enterprise to do a very dangerous warp jump within the solar system, despite literally everybody telling him not to. Uh, in a shocking twist, this causes a problem. The <laughs> Enterprise ends up in a wormhole, and Kirk almost fucks up everything by telling Chekhov to shoot an asteroid in their path with phasers, which don't work anymore like that because of the refit. And Decker has to delay the order. Apart from just the, the general slowness of the pacing of this movie, they literally, while they're in the wormhole, they they become in slow motion. It's a it's a it's a well earned it's a well earned name. So Decker and then McCoy both give Kirk further shit, and at this point, Kirk starts to realize that the shit giving has been warranted. While they're doing repairs, a small craft arrives carrying Spock, who immediately resumes his science officer duties without checking anybody with anybody. Decker's fine with it, though, because it's Spock. He's a Spock. Uh, Spock immediately fixes every problem on the ship. He's being super cold to everybody because he's been doing all this work to get ready for Colin Ayers, so he's, he's, not trying to, he's trying not to let his emotions exist. Yeah. And... <laughs> They, they arrive at the space cloud, mm-hmm. and the space cloud blasts them. But Kirk is like, not only do not respond with fire, but do not even raise shields. Do not do anything. Anything that could be interpreted as hostile. They figured out that there's something at the heart of this cloud that is intelligent. Yeah. They don't know what, but they're like, we're not showing any hostility. Okay, so here's where the, the sequencing of events is going to break down. So I think what happens is... The space cloud sends a quote-unquote probe, which is a giant moving bolt of lightning, to look around the Enterprise. And when it looks like it's going to fuck up the Enterprise's computers, Spock tries to stop it. And the the bolt of lightning gets mad and vaporizes Lieutenant Ilya, who's a navigator on the ship, Sulu's deputy, and also the former love interest of Will Decker. She's also some sort of alien called a Delton, and they... The only thing I know about Deltons, based on her loudly stating this, is that they have a vow of celibacy. She literally, like, shows up. It's, like, she... she like, when she gets... She arrives on the bridge, 
and Kirk does nothing. Like he literally just is like, "Hello," and she's like, "My vow of celibacy is on record, Captain." <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Elliot gets vaporized, and Kirk's like, "Okay, we're gonna get as close to the middle of the cloud as possible without touching the cloud." Because this quote-unquote cloud clearly exists in the form of two giant disks. Because it's not a cloud, it's a giant spaceship. It's just, it looks like one. Why do they talk? <laughs> anyway, anyway. So as they're, they're edging their way into the heart of the cloud, the cloud sends back a copy of Ilya with a little robotic bit in her chest as a talking probe. And this talking probe reveals... That the being at the heart of the cloud is called Viger, mm. and that Viger is looking for its creator, which it seems to reckon is in the vicinity of Earth for whatever reason. And they realize from how Viger talks about them that Viger is a machine life form who does not view organic life as true life. They, I guess, keep saying that, referring to the people on the Enterprise as carbon life forms infesting the Enterprise, yeah. the, they view the Enterprise as alive and, and the people on it as essentially, as essentially bacteria. Yeah. And what, what do they say when they meet Decker? Oh, right. Everybody else they refer to as Kirk unit or Spock unit or whatever, but they just call Decker Decker because Ilya's memories are still in there. You may think that this is going to, at some point, cause, like, Ilya to regain control of the... No, that's just the thing. That's the case. (laughs) No reference to the plot. The entity at the heart of the space cloud, it takes them ages to get to the center. And they basically, like, the whole way, they're, like, flying through all these, like, tunnels of light and shit. Like, the ending of 2001 A Space Odyssey. And at the very end, they get to basically, like, just outside the center... And there's this giant moving orifice <laughs> that has a tidy gap in it a little bit some of the time. And that's as close as Viger's letting them get. And while, they're, while everyone else is trying to like deal with Viger, <laughs> whatever their deal is, Spock sneaks out of the Enterprise and floats through the little orifice and goes inside and like mind melds with Viger because Vulcans can mind meld with other minds and and he figures out that V'ger is not a being within the cloud V'ger is the whole cloud the whole ship like it's all Mm V'ger V'ger is this massive organism operating on pure logic that has been traveling the stars learning everything it can by essentially digitizing what it encounters Mm -hmm. like that's what it's doing when it vaporized those Klingon ships or earlier or whatever archiving them and Viger is done learning and is now seeking its creator who is sure is on earth at this point i would like to read something i wrote down during the very first scene before we even get to spock on vulcan i think the cloud is a spaceship that grew out of a satellite probe or space telescope sent into deep space by human centuries ago and which has either evolved or merged with other technology to become a sentient machine trying to collect and catalog all of reality what? How did you? How? <laughs> how did you get that? That's crazy. Because I've seen the like four different Futurama episodes based on this. Oh my god! <laughs> I did not guess the big, the, the specific, the specific the twist. twist. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. <laughs> anyway, Kirk tells Viger that he knows the identity of the creator. He doesn't really. But he's gonna hold that. He basically holds that information hostage to force Viger to bring them to Viger in person. 
So uh, definitely Spock and Kirk and Decker go down. Is McCoy with them to meet V'ger? I th- probably. But they go to meet V'ger's true form with the Ilya probe, and it is revealed to be Voyager 6, the ah. sixth in a series of deep space probes set by NASA in the 20th century. Our NASA only did two, but this this is an alternate history. And it was thought lost in a black hole centuries ago. And that's why, like, the whole time they've been trying to communicate with the cloud using all their different friendliness codes and all their different languages and everything. It's been getting, they've been getting no response. It's because V'ger needs the code that NASA was to send to it to let it know its mission was complete. Yeah. So they get the code from the archives and they're about to put, they, they broadcast it and nothing happens because V'ger intentionally blocks the completion of the code to try and force the creator to be there in person. Aww. Essentially doing the same thing to Kirk that Kirk just did to V'ger. And Spock puts it all together and he's like, V'ger doesn't want to complete its mission. It wants a new mission. It wants the ability to develop a higher purpose than the purpose it was initially given. Mm-hmm. And so it needs to merge with a human or something. And Well, that's what V'ger wants to become one with the creator. Yeah, not knowing that the creator is... I mean, the specific creators of V'ger are gone, yeah. but humanity is yeah. there. And because he still loves Ilya, even though she's dead, and this is a machine piloting a copy of her body, uh, Deckard's like... The are in there. I know, but... Yeah. Deckard's like, I will... I volunteer myself as tribute, and he and the Ilya probe and V'ger, like, merge together in a beam of light and become a new being, and also decide to go to another dimension because they've nothing left to do in this one. <laughs> and, you know, the crew of the Enterprise escape V'ger's body before that happens. And everything's good. Or it's not going to get destroyed. And Kirk's like, Mr. Sulu, I had warp one. Warp one, sir. Heading, sir. Out there. That away. As someone who thinks that 2001 Space Odyssey is boring, how boring was Star Trek The Motion Picture? Okay, I want to state a couple things for context. (laughs) One, I haven't watched 2001 Space Odyssey in many years since I first watched it. I've only watched it one time. And my uh, views and opinions and stuff about film have changed a lot since then. So I feel like I would not find 2001 A Space Odyssey boring anymore. Mm-hmm. As evidence for this, I would like to say that by com- basically coincidence, I watched a seven hour long film earlier this week about depressed Hungarian farmers. So rather than 2001 A Space Odyssey, I'll be comparing Star Trek The Motion Picture's film <laughs> boring to the 1994 Bellatar film Satan Tango. I didn't find Star Trek The Motion Picture boring at all. Yeah. I found it tense and thrilling. Even when Kirk and Scotty spend 10 minutes very slowly approaching the Starship Enterprise. Yeah, because I got to look at the Enterprise. Correct. Yeah, I've mentioned 
in a the Snyder versus Whedon episode, actually, how I've got nowadays, I'm really into the idea of, of cinema that's just about um, the movement of objects through space. Yeah. And so <laughs> Star Trek, the slow motion picture by 2022 Dean standards is not only not boring. I was like on the edge of my seat very often. <laughs> They're, they spent... Okay, look, if you actually rethink the scales and stuff, this is actually Fantastic Voyage. This is a film about a tiny spaceship flying inside the body of an organism <laughs> and looking around. And that organism is like God. Like... It can just vaporize anything. And the constant threat that if at any second they ch- they piss Vidra off, Vidra just vaporizes them all. Like, yeah. how is this not a tense, exciting film for people? So you're telling me. I don't, I don't understand. What's wrong with people? <laughs> I get that it takes 36 minutes for the Enterprise to move, but that just makes the Enterprise moving feel incredibly momentous. That's true. It takes 50 minutes for Spock to arrive on the Enterprise, and it feels like... So exciting because it takes 50 minutes. <laughs> they just, you just spoon feed me everything straight away. Then what am I waiting for? <laughs> so obviously you guess the the twist <laughs> writ large, but the specific V'ger Voyager thing, a lot of people think that's lame. The, those people are wrong. Yeah, because it's the best. <laughs> yeah. I spent the whole time going, okay, V-G-E-R, like as an acronym and trying to figure out what it stood for. <laughs> And one of the things is I kept putting the words Voyage and Voyager in as the V. And it never <laughs> occurred to me that it would be a Voyager probe. Yeah. But it be, literally, there is something so perfect in like... So like, V'ger is is purely logical. And that's why Spock's mind is attracted to it or whatever. Because he's trying to become purely logical through Colin R. Because he's a self-hating half-human. <laughs> who wants to purge himself of emotions, he eventually realizes through the events of this film that actually a life without emotions is a life without meaning. No beauty, no meaning. Vizier operating on such pure logic that it's not able to figure out its own actual name because it doesn't realize that the nameplate is damaged. That's got some muck on it. That's... That's perfect machine machine stupidity. That's, that's perfect. <laughs> I also want to be clear that Decker isn't just like, I volunteer for this. Like, he's not being self-sacrificial. He's like, I want this so much. This is the only thing I've ever wanted. Please let me go. He's yeah, like, yeah. He, he's like he super tells, <laughs> He tells Kirk he wants to do this as much as Kirk wanted to be Captain of the Enterprise again. Which is... Uh, a lot. <laughs> yes, so much that that Kirk nearly killed the entire crew of the Enterprise, like a couple of times. <laughs> are you team? Are Are you team Kirk or team Decker? Hmm. I mean, I think Kirk was abusing his power yeah. out of ego, yeah. and also that if Kirk had not gone on the mission, the mission would have failed. Oh, that's fair. You need you needed somebody as kind and anti-violence as as kirk around for that mission like he's like don't even put up shields because then they might think that we're getting ready to attack after they are almost obliterated with a single warning shot from feature i obviously i love kirk but he's a real jerk in this movie yeah it's real jerk shit but what makes it interesting is that it's like this impossible futile yearning to go back to the past Mm. like he obviously took this promotion to admiral 
and then he should not have taken a promotion to admiral let's just let's just all agree that first yeah, and not it not because of his incompetence or anything just because he was not going to be happy yeah he's, no he all all he's ever really wanted is to be captain of the enterprise mm. with with spock as his first officer and mccoy also there <laughs> and he i mean and it makes sense why he would take a promotion to admiral because you know why would he turn down advancement when he's so devoted to starfleet but mm. that advancement just takes him further and further away from the thing that he loves and the thing that he's best at and the thing that he's meant to be doing as as uh yeah. as spock will say in wrath of khan being a starship captain is his first best destiny but he can't you can't but you can't but you can't go back you can't go back there he's never going to be that mm. young man on the five-year mission captain's lock stardate 6051 had trouble sleeping last night my hiatal hernia is acting up the ship is drafting and damp. I complain, but nobody listens. Star Trek 12. So very tired. We should talk about Spock. We should talk about Spock. Because his, his emotional arc... Don't tell him I called it that. But <laughs> his emotional arc is like this, the core of the movie, in my opinion. Yeah, the star of the film, he's been like out of Starfleet for years. Yeah, it seems like him and Kirk haven't even spoken to each other in several years. Which seems insane. Yeah. He's been on Vulcan getting rid of his pesky human emotions so he can do the culinary. Yeah. Did something happen to Spock? Why is he so... Like, I know he's always had conflict about his, his heritage and um, his constant denial that he has any emotions <laughs> despite having many of them. Like, I think we've even said on this before, the data's deal in The Next Generation is I have no emotions, that makes me terribly sad. Yeah. And Spock's deal is, I am furious you would suggest I have emotions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing, like, canonically that, like, happened to him. I feel like he felt, by the end of the five-year mission, he probably felt like he had kind of gotten too too close to his human side. Mm. I mean, the the thing about Spock is that there's this bit in an episode in the original series where basically everyone gets drunk, except it's not drunk, it's some sort of space magic. Mm. And, and he says to Kirk when I feel friendship for you I feel ashamed yeah and he's got all he's dealing with all of that and get rid of all of it instead of trying mm. to deal with it which is not I'm not being a hater against Vulcan culture at all I I think the the Vulcan devotion to logic is makes sense in many ways yeah logic is is their answer to a history of war and conflict and, yeah and stuff yeah. that was not based on logic yeah, but I th- I feel like because of Spock's mixed heritage, he's probably like internalized a lot more pressure of like that he needs to be not just follow the principles of logic, but needs to be like an exemplary Vulcan mm. or he's not Vulcan at all. Yeah, Spock says he's there on the mission because basically he wants to learn how to be as purely logical as V'ger. He felt the pure logic of V'ger's brain and he's like, I want me some of that. <laughs> But then he actually gets up close and personal with V'ger and mind melds with him. And he's like, no, I don't want this. No, no, thank you. No meaning. No hope. Jim. No answers. It's asking questions. Is this all that I am? Is there nothing more? Will I read you the footnote to the novelization? Yeah, I've been waiting okay. in I've been waiting for literally a month. 
okay. to find out about this okay. footnote. Okay. So in the novelization, which was written by Gene Roddenberry, Spock refers to Kirk as his Tahila. And then there's the following footnote. Editor's note. The human concept of friend is most nearly duplicated in Vulcan thought by the term Tahila, which can also mean brother and lover. Spock's recollection from which this chapter is drawn is that it was the most difficult moment for him since he did indeed consider Kirk to have become his brother. However, because the Hyla can be used to mean lover, and since Kirk and Spock's friendship was so unusually close, this has led to some speculation over whether they had actually indeed become lovers. At our request, Admiral Kirk supplied the following comment on the subject. I was never aware of the lover's rumor, although I have been told that Spock encountered it several times. Apparently, he always dismissed it with his characteristic lifting of his right eyebrow, which usually connoted some combination of surprise, disbelief, and or annoyance. As for myself, although I have no moral or other objections to physical love in any of its many earthly, alien, and mixed forms, I've always found my best gratification in that creature, woman. Also, I would dislike being thought of as so foolish that I would select a love partner who came into sexual heat only once every seven years. <laughs> this is a very hotly debated comment from Admiral Kirk. Yes, I can imagine. Due to it containing a lot of ambiguity and contradiction. Uh, I love that he ends with the thing about I, I wouldn't be so stupid as to, to s- seek a sexual partner who only goes into heat once every seven years. Um, I mean, I, I, I knew that about Vulcans, but I was not under the impression that was the only time that they could have sex. It's not. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> they get the mating urge every seven yeah, years. Yeah. The reproductive urge, but that is not the same thing as the sexual urge. Hmm. That is a very interesting, interesting passage. I did not realize that the novelization was presented as being based on, like, the logs of the Enterprise <laughs> during the events of the movie. But, I mean, that is pretty funny. I, like, the, edit- the editor the, the editor just being like, like, why would you approach him for comment? That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, it, it, it must be nice, to I guess, to be a historian in a position to check whether a historical figure... <laughs> you know who is gay who's gay spock yeah yeah he's in love with kirk yeah <laughs> that's true that's why he's ashamed <laughs> I, he's friends with bones he's not ashamed about it <laughs> i did just the choice of roddenberry to be like this word can mean lover this word that i just made up <laughs> can mean friend, brother, or lover. Yeah, it's which, whichever, you know. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> One of the three. I mean, the the him saying I was never aware of the lover's rumor, although I've been told that Spock encountered it several times. Then you were aware of it, Jim. <laughs> yeah, that is a that is a tricky one. So. I am glad that Spock realizes he shouldn't purge himself of all emotions. I mean, the the scene. When he's back on the Enterprise and he's like lying in the bed and he's telling Kirk what a being of such pure logic that there was no room for beauty or meaning and and no answers to mm. what because he says he wanted he he thought that Vijay would have the answers to you know and Spock has his hand clasped in both of his hands in and like to be clear. 
Vulcan in Vulcan culture, pressing your two forefingers together is kissing. Yeah, that's so, you know, and and he says this simple feeling. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But also, like, is very moving that Spock, like, comes to understand that feeling isn't a weakness and isn't something he needs to purge from himself. And he, uh, he's just, he's, he's, he's a very sweet boy. I love him. I love Spock. From far beyond the galaxies, I've journeyed to this place to study the behavior patterns of the human race. And I find them highly illogical. You you mentioned how um, it doesn't have any action scenes or villains <laughs> or so forth, and I I do yeah. find it really fascinating as like a film that very much exists because of Star Wars that is so not like Star Wars at all. <laughs> And is clearly yeah, yeah. like much more influenced by 2001 Space Odyssey and like Solaris. And <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. and I don't give a shit. Bye. There is a lot of the film that is just the Enterprise edging slowly close towards like parallel to the yeah. center of Viger yeah. while everybody talks about stuff. <laughs> and... It's very much in the people in a room talking school of sci-fi. Yeah. Which I Which was definitely loved, not but was not yeah, yeah. was was not the hotness of the time. No, and I, I don't know how Roddenberry thought he was gonna get away with it. <laughs> I guess have to assume he simply didn't care. Like Yeah. There's no way he thought that he was gonna like tr- trick the American public into watching a philosophical drama. Not in 1979. <laughs> they had cocaine by then, Gene. How were they? They were gonna be entertained by your by your thoughts on love. I bring you love. It's bringing love. Don't let it get away. Break its legs. So apart from just the slowness and the nothing happeningness and and stuff, like what else do people? Because I really did learn as little as possible about this film. I mean, that's that's the bulk of it. I will say that when the director's cut came out many years later, mm. which was the version that we watched, which is not, as far as I am aware, is not substantially different in in many respects. Like in terms of like no. It, Four minutes difference in runtime. Yeah, but when the director's cut came out, a lot of people were like, "Oh, this isn't so bad." But I think that's more of like a context change than a than a the film changing that much. Yeah. Like, okay, there's two groups of people. So you've got Trekkies, mm-hmm. who I think, I, depending on how devoted a Trekkie you are, you you, po- you probably like the motion picture. Like, I believe it is Mike class's like favorite film. <laughs> Favorite film yeah. of any? I'm not, okay, and I'm okay. not 100 sure. I didn't rewatch the review, but he he loves it. He he definitely described it as the sexiest film ever made, which is <laughs> okay hilarious. Um, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going like the look that opening. Yeah, yeah, looks of course. Like there's some... a giant there's a giant ululating orifice that yeah. is referred to as an orifice repeatedly. <laughs> The uses of certain words in this are really funny. Like, they keep calling the, the probe that looks like Aaliyah a, a, a mechanism. Yeah. Like, not a machine, because, a mechanism. 
Yeah, like, like she's a crank. Even yeah. though she is a machine so complex that the only way you can tell she's a machine is under a microscope where you realize that she's like a nanotech yeah. recreation from this cellular, like the <laughs> subcellular level to the top of the biological processes of a Delta. Like, But for the general public or people who are less committed trackies, it's mostly just that it's boring, yeah. I mean, yeah. especially, and I think probably Wrath of Khan even diminished its reputation because Wrath of Khan is such, like, a fun action movie and it's got yeah. this, like, heart-rending emotional climax when Spock fucking dies and it's like... And Richard, Ricardo Maltenban as incredible, this, like, really compelling villain. Like, I, I, Wrath of Khan is obviously, like amazing but especially because wrath of khan was very much made in the school of thought of like make it as not like the motion picture as possible mm, yeah it's not like people really liked wrath of khan and were like Ooh, maybe i should reconsider the motion picture so it's kind of sandwiched in between star wars which totally changed what people expected from you know a space based movie mm. they didn't want it to be like 2001 space odyssey and they hadn't seen Solaris in the first place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you've got Wrath of Khan on the other side showing that you can make a really great Star Trek movie that is exciting. Because Wrath mm. of Khan is very much a Star Trek, so it kind of satisfied everyone. Yeah. And the motion picture satisfied a very small number of weirdos. And here we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because exactly. I, th- I think overall I probably do prefer Wrath of Khan a bit. But there were long sections of this where I, uh, especially when they're flying into Vigor, and it's like, it's not just, like, we compared it to the 2001 Space Odyssey, like, whatever's going on at the end of 2001 Space Odyssey, where there's all those colors fly, but there's like, based on my memory, at least, first of all, this, it it spends like, way longer doing that shit than 2001 (laughs) did. And it's got like, way more different colors and lines and shit. And, (laughs) angles and i love i love like abstract cinema that's just like light co- light and colors moving in ways <laughs> and uh, there there were definitely points of this where i was like is this better than wrath of khan wow it's it's a really great film it's, i'm getting annoyed knowing how it's been treated <laughs> for the past <laughs> 40 years Are you glad that you watched Star Trek, the motion picture? I am glad that I watched Star Trek, the motion picture. It was, um, I was not sure what I was expecting because I deliberately attempted to cultivate no expectations, but it was really pretty to look at. The gang was all there. Yeah. Giving, giving great performances. It was about how (laughs) the only thing more powerful than computers is love, (laughs) which is... I see my anything. The only thing being more powerful than something is love. Is is I sold on that most of the time. I believe that a TV show that you liked that was the plot of every episode. Is that correct? That sounds right. Kira is thinking of the TV version of Twelve Monkeys, a show about how love is the only thing more powerful than time travel. Can I ask? Do Do you think that it's 
watchable at all if you're not familiar with the Star Trek characters and so forth. Hmm. Because I am, like, I'm not as aware of as you, obviously. But you know but who Kirk aware. and Spock and McCoy are. It's hard for me to imagine somebody in 2022 who does not have, just from being alive, the information necessary. Because That's fair. I yeah. think the only, like, really critical bit of information that you need to know is that Starfleet's not military. It's exploratory. And that it's not, that, like, like, while Kirk is doing a more... More so than than most people in Starfleet probably would. His aggressive non-hostility is part like part of Starfleet's whole deal. Yeah. But even in, then, in the context of the film, if you're coming up against something that, if it detects any hostility at all, will vaporize you effortlessly. Pretty pretty smart <laughs> to not display any hostility at all. That's true. I think um, as long as you are not expecting. Any explosions that are not the result of faulty engineering, <laughs> then this should be like I don't know what people like. I don't know what people want out of a movie. <laughs> but as long as you're if, as long as you're fine with a sci-fi film being about like call me crazy, but sci-fi concepts instead of I have no idea why this wouldn't be an enjoyable film. They they spend the whole they spend virtually like the whole film with God holding a gun to their head. Why? What is what is not to what is not tense and exciting about this? Next episode. Next episode, I'm showing you a gay film. <laughs> I'm showing you Neil Jordan's uh, 1994 cinematic masterpiece, Interview with the Vampire. Starring the 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 last the last two movie stars in human history, Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt. That's yeah, that's true. Uh, along with a whole host of wonderful character actors who are all playing gay vampires. They're all gay. There's not a straight person in the whole thing. <laughs> that's my that's my pitch on Interview with a Vampire. <laughs> Neil Jordan loves gay shit. He loves Ireland, and he loves ghoulies, like vampires, werewolves, that whole thing. He loves all those. Me, me too, on all three. He doesn't get Ireland in Interview with the Vampire, but he does get Stephen Ray in it, like in all of his Of course! Films, so. Yeah! Until next time, I'm Kira Maloney. I'm Dean Buckley. The song was Bushtag by Alexander Nakarada. And this was The Sunday Presents. And a very happy birthday to Anna Paquin. Melvar, you can't let a TV show be your whole life. You can do anything you want. Look at Walter Koenig. After Star Trek, he became an actor.